1893, Chicago's Columbian Exposition. Over 125 years ago, the Columbian Exposition was staged in Chicago on Lake Michigan's shoreline. Visitors from around the country and world were first introduced to many industrial technologies and commercial offerings that would shape 20th century culture. This book explores a collection of event photographs and juxtaposes them against a set of modern images to catalog the living remnants in art and architecture around the city as a legacy to the 1893 World's Fair. 1893, Chicago's Columbian Exposition, now available from Amazon. Audiobook version available soon. By being an engineer and then by being involved in um, I'm not trained in computer science. Um, I studied physics and mathematics. Um, so, one of the interesting things that happened in, in the history of Bitcoin, in my experience, is people that uh, didn't fully understand Bitcoin were trained to improve on Bitcoin. So, Turing completeness has a lot to do with this because people that created Ethereum claimed to have created a Turing complete version of Bitcoin. Uh, and that shows you that they didn't fully understand Bitcoin because Bitcoin was turned complete to begin with, and they didn't understand the nature of the term complete. So I'm going to cover some, uh, just a bunch of background here and explain script and the way in which uh, Bitcoin is turned complete. So what we have here is uh, a screenshot of a white paper talking about how transactions work. So this is the most simplistic way of looking at transactions. Um, so this would be if you have like a single coin. The idea is that you can transfer the coin by signing it over again and again. You sign basically the, the hash of the previous transaction in the chain. Um, and that's basically it. Um, but of course, we want something more complicated than this because it would be awfully annoying if you could only send one coin at a time. And say in order to send somebody 100 million coins, that you had to create 100 million transactions. So Bitcoin also allows us to have multiple and outputs in a single transaction. So uh, this is a screenshot. I grabbed this one from Google, and somebody made this uh, graphic here. Um, so we have the ability to have uh, multiple different inputs and outputs. Uh, each input and output contains a script as well as a value. So we can put in 50 BTC in this example here and then output different amounts. Um, so that way it's a lot more efficient than having one transaction per point. Uh, but it's very nice to say that the, the under, underlying sort of uh, idea here is actually of individual units, uh, not in terms of a divisible amount. Um, but the input-output structure lets us send uh, multiple units in individual uh, outputs. Um, of course, the title of the white paper is Bitcoin is a peer-to-peer electronic cash system. Um, so this is the, the whole idea that this is referring to is that people send transactions peer-to-peer, -peer, uh, not that everybody runs a node. Um, so what I have here is a uh, some design work that's created by our designer, Aoki. Uh, on the left, we have uh, 
a vision of the small world, small world network of miners. So that if you are a miner, what you are doing is you are operating a node that connects to pretty much all the other miners. Because when you mine a block, what you want to do is deliver that block to all the other miners. On the right side, though, what we're showing is the, the other peer-to-peer -peer network, the network of Bitcoin. This is the part that you're involved in if you're a user. This is more like a mesh network, because what you do is you transact with the people that you transact with. So you, you're one hop away from those people, but you might be multiple hops away from everybody else. So you might be seven hops or whatever it is from some other person in the network. So they're two completely different networks. Uh, so the first one is simply the users. This is really what the title of the white paper is referring to as the idea of peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash. It's not primarily talking about the miners. It's talking about well, the idea that you can hand digital cash to someone peer-to-peer. -peer. That's really what it's referring to primarily. The other network is a completely different network. If this isn't really clarified in the white paper, I think it's very helpful to understand it this way as two completely different networks. Um, the miners uh, have a very different structure to the network, which is a small world, uh, which is where they all connect to each other. This would be unrealistic for you to have direct connection to everybody else in the world, but for the miners it makes a lot of sense for them to do it. Um, so this matters a lot for a, a lot of different reasons, uh, but one of them is scalability, so this is relevant to stuff we're working on right now. Um, on the left we have a, the way that basically all wallets work right now is when you send money to someone, rather than give them the money, you give it to the miners, and then you ask them to look at all of the world's transactions to find the money that you've given them buried somewhere inside. Uh, that's unscalable. What we want to do is move to a model whereby we send transactions peer-to-peer, -peer, so that if Alice is giving Bob money, Bob doesn't have to look at the entire world's transactions. Bob can just receive the transaction directly from Alice. Again, this is the whole idea of peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash. The transactions are in the electronic cash, you're handing it over peer-to-peer. Okay, so now we sort of merge these ideas together. So when you're validating a transaction, how do you know whether you have real money? Um, what you want to do is, for each input, you validate, uh, you find the output that it, that it spins, and you run the input of the new script followed by the output uh, that it's spinning. And you have to make sure that these things evaluate true. Uh, for every single input in order to know whether the transaction is valid or not. Uh, there are a few other sanity checks. Uh, let's see, what am I missing here? Uh, yeah, things like, you know, the outputs can't add up more than the inputs. But basically what you're doing is you're actually running a script. Um, so an important thing to understand about script is that script is a, is a predicate. So this just basically means a statement that evaluates either true or false. Um, a predicate, because I've got some really silly examples here, but the sun is hot is a predicate, the sun is cold is also a predicate. One of those is true, one of those is false. But they're predicates. Uh, we can have other types of, let's, you know, I, I'm not sure what the word for this would be, but a predicate that evaluates to a value rather than to a simply true or false, whereby the value is non-zero is true. So this is something that we're used to in programming languages. You can say something like if five, because five is not zero, but it evaluates true. Well, this is really how script inside uh, Bitcoin works. So we now have this re-enabled finally in Genesis. For people familiar with the history, this is actually really remarkable that we have proper return values enabled now inside script. So you can actually return a value, not just true or false. All right, so I have an example script here. Um, this is a standard PubKey hash uh, script. 
Uh, so we're merging two scripts, one from the input, one from the output. So the first two values, it says sig pubkey if you're reading the, the script part of it. Um, it says sig and then it says pubkey. So that's from the input, where we're pushing the signature of the public key inside the input that we're going to validate. And then the output is spent, or sorry, is uh, is then executed. So it says dupe as a duplicate top item, run hash 160 on it, uh, then push the public key, then run equal verify, and then run checksum. So what this is often called are things like, so they, you, you have like, a, some, some people refer to this as the locking script and the unlocking script. The unlocking script of the SIG and pub key, the locking script is the output. So the run in reverse order, I've got a, a couple of graphics here I think I can show in a second here. Um, but, but what we see here is running through the script that we're actually executing inside of the transaction that we're verifying and seeing what the value of the stack is on the left. So let me just pause and take questions because I'm going really quickly here. Does anybody have comments or questions about anything I've said so far? And if I went, I'm going super fast. So if anybody has basic questions, feel free to ask anything. Uh, what I'm breaking down in this case is when you validate a transaction, you have to validate each input. The inputs contain scripts, and when you do that, you concatenate basically the input script against the previous output script. So I'm showing you what actually happens when you run one of these concatenated scripts together. So this is something that this is a part of validating a transaction. So for each input in a transaction, you do something like this. So that's what I'm showing in this example. That's when you run the script. The scripts are run when you actually validate the transaction. So if I were to give you a transaction, uh, in order to know that it's valid money, and if, let's assume we're all moving towards a model where we're using proper SVB, and this is kind of a big uh, sort of uh, issue, I would say, because we want to move towards proper SVB in order to create scalable wallet infrastructure. What your software does, you as a person don't have to think about this at all, but what your proper SVB wallet would do is run the scripts that look like this for every input. So you actually execute the scripts. You do that as somebody that receives the transaction. When you give it to a miner, of course, they have to do the same thing. So they would validate each input by running scripts. Um, we can do other things with this in the future inside the PMA channels and, and run scripts uh, for, you know, to, to do things and, and stuff. Uh, so exactly. Yeah. OK. So we can watch this. Now, one interesting property of script is it has a stack and an off stack. So we're seeing the stack on the left side. So we're seeing what we're pushing to the stack and what's on the stack. Um, who knows what, who, who doesn't know what a stack is? Which question is that? I'll ask that one first, I suppose, since I already asked it. Who does not know what a stack is and what I'm referring to? That's fine, right? I didn't know. Okay, who does know? You confidently say that you know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the stack and script. I don't see everybody raise their hand. <laughs> So in programming languages, we do things like, uh, you know, we often set variables, so we're used to using things that are more complicated than the stack. But a stack is a really primitive data structure that we can push stuff to the stack and pop things from the stack. So it's like in any super simple uh, uh, programming language or simple computer, which I'll get to in a second here, a stack is just a data structure. It's the memory. It's, it's where the information lives that we're, we're manipulating is inside the stack. I'll get to that a little bit more in a minute, but I'll just kind of move on there. So then we can see the results of what happened. So in the first one here, we push the signature, we push the public key, and then we run dupe. And so the execution point is running the hash 160. So what it then does is it runs, so we push the signature, push the public key, then push another public key, because we do, sorry, then we duplicate it, then it runs the hash on it. So that's why the top item on the stack is the result of the hash. There's pub key hash. 
Then we, we need to run the output. It pushes the puppy hash. This is basically the address that we're spending. And then we confirm that they're the same by running op equal verify. Um, and then we run checksit, which checks the signature. And we hope that the result ends up being true. If it's false, then the transaction is invalid. If it's true, then we proceed to the next input. We need to make sure that all, trans or all inputs are true. Okay, I'll move on again. I know I'm screwing really quickly here, but I'm explaining mostly most of my talk is about the theoretical background. Um, so now I'm going like, to sort of take a break and talk about uh, these finite automata. So in the history of computing, um, you know, the, the first computer I'm aware of that was like a general purpose computer was, this, was a mechanical computer invented by Charles Babbage um, in the 1800s. I don't remember the year exactly, but it was, it was before the era of electronic computers. But Charles Babbage had this idea of a machine that could compute anything. So he made a mechanical computer. It wasn't even electronic. Um, fast forward a bit, you had sort of two parallel tracks. You had people trying to make actual computers, and then you had people trying to understand the theoretical limits of computers. Um, one model of computers is called automata. So this is a way of understanding computers. It's not about making an actual real-world computer. It's a way of modeling. So automata are very simple computers. The idea is that you have a number of states, you have that contain, you know, be like in a modern binary computer, be the state to be like one or zero or something like this. Um, but it could be anything. And then you have a way of inputting data and then a transition function, which is like the functionality of the computer that moves forward to a new state given the input in the, in the current state. And then a set of accept states, which is like what the final result is, basically, like whether it ends up accepting it or not at the end. So it's a very simple model of computers is automata. I'll pause again. Again, I know I'm going super quickly. I'll fit, fit all this stuff together in a minute here. But are there any comments or questions about automata? Finite and two push-up. Well, I'll get to that in a second. Let me just proceed to the next slide, because I'm going to talk about these other ones. Um, OK, so push-down automata is uh, slightly more complicated than the one I just described, which is that we also have a stack so not only do we have the state of the machine, but we've got the memory. We have a stack that we can push data to and, and pop data from. Um, so this is called a PDA or push down automata. Any comments or questions about this? Alex or anybody else? You know what's coming next. Okay, well the next one is the idea of a two PDA. So again, what I'm describing here, and I know I'm going super fast here, but the idea is that these are theoretical models of computation. There are computers that look that actually kind of look like this stuff. Your computer, you probably wouldn't model as a 2PDA. That would be a very bizarre way to model your computer. But lots of computers are modeled this way. Now, Bitcoin script is basically a 2PDA. So what this is is, OK, so we have the state of the automata. We also have a stack that we can push and pop stuff from. We also have another stack. Um, the second stack turned out to be really important because it allows us to do basically anything at all. So, the second stack, it turns out to be the condition that allows us to prove Turing completeness of the, of, the, uh, of the machine. So this means we can compute it in numbers. So I'll, I'll come back to this in a little bit more detail in a second. Um, is it clear what a 2PDA is? I really feel like I'm going too fast now that I think about it. But, uh, but uh, who, who has questions about this before I breeze through uh, even more slides here? Um, OK, so that is like. Uh, I actually don't know what that graphic is referring to. There is a there is a state, and then there's a, a control. Like, 
there's like a function that transitions things. It's probably returning to the state. It's probably what that control bit is. Because what it really is is like the operation of the machine. So if you're inside script, the state would actually be like the operation that you're on right now. And so the transition function takes the current operation and the values of both stacks and it goes to the next state. So that's probably why they use the word control there. So the way you would use a 2PDA is that the state of it would be the operation that we're running. Interesting question. Okay, so roughly speaking, um, if, you, if you've ever tried to use one stack, sometimes you need to uh, do things like dig down deeply into the stack and manipulate things arbitrarily in the stack. Uh, it turns out that the second stack allows you to like, push stuff over to the new stack and back again. You can kind of clear out the primary stack. So it allows you to do things like dig down arbitrarily deep into your stack and basically do arbitrary manipulations on the memory contained inside the first stack. So that's an intuitive explanation. If, if you had me try to prove it to you, I wouldn't be able to do so. I'm not that sophisticated at this subject. But you can prove that trying to clean this with the second stack. Another way of looking at it is if you add a third stack, you gain nothing. Because you can model a 3PDA as a 2PDA. So the third stack doesn't allow you to do anything that you can't do with a 2PDA. With um, but that's just an intuitive explanation. But you can also just try to do it. And if you try to program something in script, you'll sometimes find the only way you can figure out how to do something is to push something to the alt stack and clear out the main stack and do something and then push it back. Um, I imagine for some things it probably is. Uh, as far as an example, I couldn't give you an example. Um, I imagine uh, you know, there are probably some specific tasks that you could do where the, the third stack would be more efficient. Because um, this isn't about the Turing completeness of a two PDA is about the fact that you can compute anything, not necessarily whether it's efficient. Um, all right, let me give a, another piece of background uh, about. So I've been somewhat. Uh, uh, how can I put this? Uh, sort of very uh, pushing forward very much with things like BSD and being very clear that Craig Wright is Satoshi Nakamoto in, in a lot of these things. Um, I have some interesting uh, sort of uh, experiences. Uh, particularly, so my former co founder's name is Clement Lay. Uh, he has a PhD in automotive theory. So he studied exactly these things. So when him and I started this company that would later become Moneybag. Uh, I was teaching him script because I knew about a lot of the low-level details of Bitcoin, but I wasn't a computer scientist. So we had some really interesting discussions where he became convinced that Bitcoin was Turing complete. Now this was in 2016. Everyone knew in 2016 that Bitcoin was not Turing complete. That's what Ethereum is. Ethereum is a Turing complete version of Bitcoin. Obviously, you know we all know the script is super limited. It's just, there's lots of stuff you can't do because there's no loop. But Clement was convinced, look, this is a 2PDA. It's, it's trying to complete. He understood these ideas. Um, so he wanted to go out there and prove that. Now, around the same time, this is when Craig Wright, uh, uh, well, this is when people like Ian Grigg, who some of us just saw at Lynette at the Coinbase conference last week, uh, validated that Craig has a Satoshi piece. There's a video of Craig with a, a, uh, uh, a, a being on a panel with Nick Zabo. And Nick Zabo was saying Bitcoin isn't turning complete, and Craig is saying it is turning complete. I think Craig was the only person who ever said Bitcoin was trying to complete until Clements, my former co-founder, also agreed with him. So what ended up happening was uh, we were so the whole thing was so weird watching Craig come out and then everybody refused to believe that he didn't sign publicly and then people 
accused him of being fraud. But he knew that Bitcoin was storing complete, which is a very unusual, like it was a very unusual claim to be making. Uh, to be the only person making that claim that everything everyone thinks was wrong. And my co-founder was absolutely convinced that it actually was story complete. So he called email InChain. And so we got in touch with InChain by early 2017. And so I ended up getting a lot of uh, uh, interesting insight by meeting them early on and being a bit more uh, open-minded and clued into some of these ideas than almost the entire rest of the industry. So that's part of why we ended up being uh, more forward-looking than we otherwise might have been, was by really understanding the, these ideas and taking the change seriously and being uh, involved with them uh, relatively early. Uh, okay, so script is a GPDA. Um, all right, so, all right. I, now I want to talk about the idea that uh, uh, Bitcoin is, is not just about inputting and outputting money, but the way these scripts works, it, it, it lines up that what you're doing is actually inputting and outputting both money and information. So if you understand some of these ideas, um, what I'm showing you here is a transaction. I'm showing you uh, the orange is inputting and outputting Bitcoin. So you've got two transactions. On the left, we input Bitcoin, we output Bitcoin. And everyone kind of thinks that this is what you're doing inside of the transaction. But there's a really interesting twist that this didn't occur to me until fairly recently, and it sort of dawned on me. It was like a, a bit of a revelation about the structure of the transaction. It is simultaneously inputting and outputting information, too. So what I'm showing you in the blue one is, now the blues are running in, opposite, in the opposite direction here, so I'll, I'll sort of point, because I don't have a point here, but the one on the right is the input. The one on the left is the output. You run them in that order. So when you validate the transaction on the right, what you do is you take the script inside of the input, the TX2. You run it. That's the input. So you run the input first in the second transaction. It pushes stuff to the stack. You then run the other script inside the previous transaction, the output script. Okay? Now what happens is the output script outputs a value, like bytes, information. Not just value in the sense of Bitcoin, because there's Bitcoin coming out of the output but a return value. So it outputs information as well. Is that clear to people? Because the name Bitcoin is a very appropriately chosen name and that it is both bit, which is information, and coin, which is money. It is both of them simultaneously. Is it possible to send information without coins? Um, that's an interesting question. So I suppose you could, because I, I see nothing prohibiting a zero-value output. So you could... So there's, there's no, to my knowledge, there's no consensus minimum fees. There are things like the minimum fees to relay a transaction that are all turned on by default. What they did was, I believe they lowered either the, the default value or all the miners agreed to lower the default, the default value of both the relay fee size. That is to say, if you are a node, you will relay the transactions that you receive to the other nodes that you're connected to if the fee is a certain minimum value. I think that value is something like 0 0.25 satoshis provide for at least some of the miners. But relay doesn't mean what you, what you put into a block. Although they relay 0 0.25 satoshis provide, uh, I believe most miners currently will only mine transactions if it's at least 0 0.5 satoshis provide. So there's a difference between the relay rules, which are not consensus rules, but it's a bit of a sort of, sort of a sort of a DOS prevention mechanism of the network to be able to choose what you relay and what you don't relay. So, like 
But the consensus, I believe, I believe if you are a miner, you can mine a block with zero fee transactions and zero valued outputs, and those are both valid as far as I'm aware. So what I'm, what I'm trying to show you is the blue ones are information and the orange ones are money. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I think what, what it should be is that what I would say is, no, I don't think the arrow should point in the other direction, but I should connect the second blue arrow by pointing from the, the pointy side all the way back to the start of the first blue arrow, is what it should be. Because they kind of run in the reverse order when you think of it. In order to validate TX2, we run the input first, followed by the output of the earlier transaction. So I want to explain a little bit, I'm going to try to explain conceptually exactly how it is that Bitcoin is trying to complete as best I can. So, um, oh, so there's a funny thing. So Turing machines, so I, we covered automotive. This is a model of computers. Some computers kind of map directly to an automotive. So for instance, uh, remember reading about this, like one trivial example or things like um, one of those, I don't see these too often anymore, but I've never seen these as a child. You go to the supermarket and you step on a mat and it causes the door to open. Uh, and then like if someone's standing on both mats, the door won't change, but if someone's standing on only one mat, uh, the door will, will open, and if you step off, it closes. You can model that as, as an automaton, or using automata. Um, Turing machines are a much more sophisticated way of modeling computers. Um, what this is is the idea that you have like a, a head that reads a tape. And if, when you read textbook definitions of this, it's really funny. They almost always say the tape is infinite. They actually explicitly say that you have an infinite tape in a Turing machine. So you have a, a head that reads the tape and it can write to the tape and it contains a value. And depending on what that value is, like it'll do something. They can scan back and forward with the tape. Um, and that's a Turing machine. It's, it's conceptually pretty simple. Uh, the point I want to call out on this is, is, is it is really funny when you think this stuff through and understand this particular issue that, well, of course, there's no actual infinite tape in reality. And so that they require an infinite tape as a part of the definition of the Turing machine means what many of these definitions we're talking about does not actually exist in the world. So when people sometimes say that Bitcoin isn't Turing complete, they'll give you a really silly reason, which is that, oh, well, you know, look, uh, Turing machines have an infinite tape, and, uh, you know, Bitcoin's fine with it, and so it's not Turing complete. But of course, you can say the exact same thing about any computer, uh, because there is no infinite tape in reality. So anyway, um, so it, the Turing machine has different there no slide on this. Um, so uh, what can I say? There, there is no such thing as an infinite tape. I, let me just read what I said here. I said something like, uh, you know, Turing is a genius, and it's one of these cases of uh, I think what actually happened was if you read Turing's original paper, it's called on the computability of numbers. I think I've got another one here. Yeah, here I've got the paper right here uh, on computable numbers with an application to the Inchendon's problem. You actually read the paper, he doesn't actually assume that these machines have an infinite tape. He never says that ever. Um, this is something where I think lesser academics simplified Turing's model and made it worse uh, because they made it easier on themselves. Um, but Turing actually didn't assume an infinite tape. Well, Turing understood physics, and well, that would be silly if there's an infinite tape. There's no such thing in reality. We care about a finite tape. So what we care about is not an infinite tape, we care about a tape of size n. What we care about are things like, okay, if you go about computing something, here's what you really care about. You want to know that if the result of your computation is a number, that your computer has the ability to result in that number. So that would be something like the digits of pi. Well, you're never going to compute all the digits of pi. You expect to compute some length 
of the, the number of digits in model. Um, so we want to make sure that there's a tape of size n that results in the correct answer. If n isn't big enough, then multiply it by 2. That is to say, if, you're, if you run out of memory, you should be able to add more memory and with a sufficiently large amount of memory, get the correct answer. So we don't need an infinite tape. What we need is a sufficiently large tape that we get the answer that we're actually looking for. Yeah, you would eventually run out of memory in that case. So if you kept going. And that's another thing when you get to the term completeness of uh, We care about results that, or sorry, we, should, we care about computations that end. So there is something called uh, the halting problem, which is that when you, when you have a, if you have the ability to keep looping, you don't necessarily know whether a program will actually end without running it. So some programs just keep going forever until you run out of memory. Uh, but we don't actually care about those, do we? Because if it goes forever, uh, you're not actually computing something that you ever get the answer to. So it's kind of an academic thing, like, well, any real-world computation that you run will actually come to an end, or you've written it poorly, or you're asking the wrong question or something like this. So we only, only care about problems that actually come to an end eventually. Uh, those are the only ones we care about. Um, okay, so now I want to talk about unrolling loops. So the reason why this matters is, um, one of the criticisms against Bitcoin was like Bitcoin isn't Turing complete because there's no way to loop. This is really silly. Um, of course you can loop. Again, when you understand these things, like, like imagine you have a computer uh, that can loop. You have to keep track of how many times you've looped. You can't actually loop literally, because if you have a counter, um, the size of the counter will eventually explode to infinity itself, and you'll run out of memory. You can't loop literally forever. Um, you can loop, though. And you can loop in script, even though there's no looping construct. You can do something called loop unrolling. Now, the example I have here is uh, uh, loop unrolling, if you look this up, this screenshot comes from Wikipedia. It's usually talked about as a form of optimizing compilers. So you might have a program that you want to run, and you want to run faster. And so sometimes what you do is, instead of having a loop, you take the code and you do it 10 times in a row, and that's faster. Um, that's what this example is referring to. But you can also understand loop unrolling as a way to loop without actually having a looping construct. So what this means is, let's suppose I want to loop over something. I'm adding a one to a number or whatever it is. I'm doing something simple inside of a loop. Um, instead of having a while loop, I could just put the code there 10 times. And what I do is, I put it inside conditionals to say something like, if I'm still inside the loop, then stay. Otherwise, don't do anything. Great. So you can unroll a loop, and you can unroll it to size n. So imagine your loop goes up to 10 times. Then you put the code there 10 times in a row. Now you've got a loop of 10. And if you understand what I was saying before about you're eventually going to run out of memory anyway. When people say things like, oh, it's going to be you know, too big or something like that, it's like, if we're trying to understand what the limits of computation of Bitcoin are, um, the fact that we can unroll a loop is sufficient to know that we can compute anything. So we have two stacks. It's a two PDA. You can unroll loops. There you go. If you try to run your script and it breaks because it didn't finish by the time you get to the end of your script, then you needed to unroll your loops bigger. So instead of unrolling them to 10, unrolling them to 100 or something like this. And you can basically make the script longer and compute anything. Comments or questions? I think what I'll do in a future version is because I, I can tell like uh, we need like animations and better graphics, but it's totally plain all this stuff. Anyway. All right. Um, so when you understand, okay, so that's, an, that's, a, that's actually one way that Bitcoin is turning to If you look at the criticism and say, oh, we need a looping, we need, we need a loop. 
Studio, you can put the code there multiple times in a row. That, that's, a, that's as good a loop as you can ever get because you can run it in the computer anyway. You're doing things one after the other. Loop unrolling gives you everything you need. Okay, so there's a, actually another interesting thing you can do though inside payment chains. So I think this is probably the more important thing. This is where it's important to understand that, that the vision for Bitcoin is, is, much, is bigger than what people often realize. And it's not about having the miners run it. The miners are more like a settlement network. You can have other networks on top that use payment channels to do this. And you can loop inside payment channels. So let's suppose I open it. What you can do is things like uh, open a channel to someone. You have here input information, output information. So the channel would be like TX1 in this case. TX2 would be a, a, a transaction that actually spins the first input. In the input, the blue one, we have information that pushes to the stack. And in the output one, we've got some complicated script. So we could have some arbitrarily complicated script contained inside of the output. Now, when you have a payment channel, let's assume transaction one is the channel, we update this transaction over and over again. We can keep the output script the same, it will return a value. We have the ability to take the value and put it into the input of the second script. Or, sorry, the uh, second transaction. So that's actually a way of looping. Because we're looping by updating the channel itself over and over again. We're running the same code, but there's a value that's being propagated back into the channel itself. So we take the return value and we basically input it back into it. And so we can, we can run a loop inside of a payment channel. So as we update the payment channel, we're running code each time, like the, the recipient will, will validate the transaction or whatever it is, or yeah, be like they're sort of validating the spending transaction or something. Uh, but you can run that script in a loop inside of a payment channel. So that's looping. That's a different way to loop. And again, this allows you to understand uh, we're keeping this off-chain. So in this case, it would be like both of them are off-chain. You don't even really need a second transaction, but it's there just to understand conceptually. Like the channel is the first one, and the point is that it, the, we're outputting a return value. So it returns 7 or something like this. We can take that value, 7, and put it back into the input of the next one. And so we've got a complete script there that we're, we're running. It's like the, the script that you use to validate TX2. involves inputting 7 and some other stuff, and then running the same code over it will, it will eventually settle on chain when you actually give it to miners. That's great. Can you break? Like, break from the loop? Um, I guess what you would need to do is something like, uh, uh, I suppose if you did something like, you know, there's an interesting property of Bitcoin script in that anytime you have that return zero, it's in value. Um, I don't know if that would be the same thing as breaking. Uh, probably what you would do is something like, I would regard break. Like I think we need things like payment channel protocols so that we, we give meaning to these return values. Um, you would need to return something that indicated like you're done. So you got the answer you're looking for, something like this. And that would be the same thing as break. That's how I would look at it. So uh, that seems like credit. It seems like what? Credit. What is credit? Like uh, you're giving somebody, you're leasing somebody something for payment. Um, I suppose. Because the, the payment will occur when it actually settles, I guess. Is that what you mean by that? I'm describing more than is illustrated. 
So what's missing here, like I'm not showing you the return value, I'm putting that back into the input. I'm trying to explain that in words. Well, there's a new sequence number. Yeah, so I don't think it has to be. I mean, I think inside of a payment channel, you can do whatever you want to. You could, I think you can change inputs and outputs. I, mean, I think what you would normally do is like, you know, let, let's see here. Because the transaction ID will be different as soon as you change the sequence number. What is it? Where's the sequence number? The sequence yeah. number is in the transaction ID. I think it might blink those. So I, I wonder under what conditions is the transaction ID actually the same? Instead of payment channel. I'm just asking that because it's like, what, what is a payment channel? I, mean, I, I think you could, so long as you agree with your counterpart, you can change it in which way you want to. Um, I, think the I think if you change the sequence number, I think that's in the inputs. And so that actually doesn't change the transaction ID. So there's in a, a sense in which that would actually be the same transaction, but that they do sequence number. I think. Can anybody correct me if I'm wrong on that one? Is that correct that sequence numbers are in inputs? There's, there's yes. like more than one sequence. Yes. Every sequence. Yeah, every input has a sequence. So, do you understand what I'm saying? Then those are actually blanked. In other words, because you blank, maybe you know this, they're not blanked. Only script is blanked. Okay, so the sequence number does change the transaction. I have not run a payment channel. It would have been nice if Lightning Channel was in common so that we wouldn't have the same. I would have some other channel. Well, okay, so, um, how is it different from yeah, yeah, look, uh, uh, you know, I'll, I'll explain that by explaining how silly Ethereum is. Yeah. So, I mean, well, to be honest, I don't have a use case of the different return values and things like this. So what I imagine would be something like a network of payment channels, because you can do all sorts of things. I don't remember if I have a slide on this or not, but you can actually have, uh, I'm describing a very simplistic idea. You can have multiple different outputs. And then you can do things like actually call functions by returning the output number that you want to run. So you can actually go back and forth, up and down, outputs and things like this. And then you can return values that are passed to other regions. I actually don't have a use case for any of these advanced ideas. They're just interesting that it's possible to do this. So I imagine networks of these things creating conditions inside of a network that settles the network. But I actually don't have a use case. It's just an interesting thing that you can do. So let me answer both these because I want to comment on what Bill said first of all. So I think what I what I, I I think you can do that with very simple payment channels of data. What I don't see is I have yet to see a, a use case for a advanced script that does a bunch of stuff and inside of a payment channel uh, where the script is actually like important. I haven't seen a use case. Yeah, where it's like you need an advanced script to do something, um, and it's not simply the network screaming data. I like get that part of it. So you can stream data and then like you get cut off and then you can broadcast the last one. That's a payment channel, but then combining advanced scripts inside of there, that's why I don't I haven't seen a use case for that. It sounds like anything's possible, but I don't know a use case for um, I want to talk about the second one then and I'll remind people. I mean, so like one of the first things we did with my company was to create something like Lightning. We had routed payment channels. So the idea is this. This is where we actually uh, try to send micropayments through payment chains. So you do things like you use these HTLC contracts where you have something where I want to pay somebody using a network of payment channels. And then, gosh, now I'm forgetting how this works. But somehow they, they have a secret that's propagated backwards to the payment channel such that if I incrementally pay them more money, um, it 
everyone is incentivized to update their channel, and then if they don't do it correctly, um, the secret gets broadcast on the blockchain, and then you can steal their money or something else. So it's like a particular way of doing it. So I guess to answer my own question is like, okay, so a use case for some more advanced script would be like Lightning, um, but we don't actually need that if it's just for micropayments because you can just send somebody a micropayment. You can send them one satoshi or something. So that wouldn't be something we would do because it's kind of pointless when we don't have high fees. Um, but that is a use case for payment channels. It is certainly not the only use case. Uh, and uh, it's not, uh, uh, I mean, you know, the people pitching Lightning Network pitch that as the way to scale Bitcoin, which is not how I would look at it at all. So I, I, would, I would be shocked if anybody did Lightning Network on BSV because I, I would think of a giant uh, pointless endeavor. I, mean, like, I don't know why anybody would do that. It would not be valuable on this. Okay, so another concept I want to talk about because uh, uh, I keep going back to Ethereum. Because for those of us that lived through this stuff, the fact that Ethereum was pitched as the same as Bitcoin but better because it was uh, is really silly to understand how we scale. So because of the UTXO model of Bitcoin, you can validate transactions in parallel. So we have a Turing complete script. There's nothing that you can't compute with this script language. Um, but because of this UTXO model, I can do things like validate transactions in parallel. I don't need to know what a script does before I run it. I just need to know whether it spends something that's already been spent or not. So this is a deeply different than Ethereum, where the only way you can know what a script does is to run it. So it's completely different. In this model, I can run everything in parallel because I do a simple check as to whether it's spending something that's been spent or not. And then I run the script. Um, you can't do this in Ethereum. In Ethereum, because you have to always run the script to even know what it does, and the order matters, you end up having to run everything in serial. Because there's, there's no other way to, you, know, you, you, you couldn't reliably run anything in parallel because you might get a different answer than whatever. So Ethereum ends up having to run everything in series. Um, whereas in Bitcoin, it's, it's parallelized. So it's a fundamental difference. Like Bitcoin is scalable. Ethereum isn't. Like at a, at a deep, like, like architectural But by, by functional, in this case, I guess you're, you're talking about the idea that there's, there's no, like, uh, you're not like mutating some state or something like this. Like, um, okay, so then I'll bring up another concept, again, relevant to Ethereum. Um, I've started using the word agents for this. You can, so I, I'm showing you, we know what miners and we know what users are. Uh, and in this chart, what I'm showing our agents are basically things that, that, that do things uh, that can be automatic, um, where you do things like open a payment channel with it. But if you do really interesting things with this idea, you can, you can run code, especially when you understand this idea of using payment channels for anything. You can run code with an agent, and you can do really sophisticated things. So the miners don't run everything, do they? Because if you're running a lot of this code inside the payment channel, these agents would actually be executing script. So if, you're, if, you're, if you need a world computer that does anything that you want to be done, you would rather have a model like this, where you can sort of engage with these uh, computers and run whatever is appropriate for the circumstances in an efficient way determined by the economics of the situation. Whereas with Ethereum, the miners have to run everything. They end up running all the code because you run, put, some, put some fancy smart contract in there and they run the entire thing. In Bitcoin, you can imagine running really complicated code inside of a payment channel 
But then settling to a normal transaction, that's just like pay two pub key match. So that all of the code is actually hidden from the miners. That all of the code is not being executed by miners. So this is a different way in which Bitcoin is more efficient in theory. Because what will probably end up happening is the miners will basically just see the most simple types of scripts most of the time. The only reason why you would end up putting complicated things inside the miners, probably most of the time, is because uh, you stop your payment channel halfway through because if some party was decided not to be involved, their machine went offline, they decided to scam you or something like this. And so you had to settle in the middle of the payment channel. But otherwise, you'll process the payment channel all the way through, and then the way that you settle is to reduce it to a normal puppy hash script. So that the miners don't see anything complicated. They see puppy hash out the result. Is that clear? So this is a different way in which Bitcoin is actually more scalable than Ethereum. Not only is it parallelizable, but it's it's the who runs what is governed by economics rather than by requiring the miners to run everything complicated. So if we're not offloading everything onto the miners, it could be the miners that are these agents, but it doesn't have to be. Yes. I agree with that. So like you, you certainly you need the ability to run that with the miners. Yeah. Just not the requirement to do so. So what I'm imagining in this situation would be like the agent would settle to the miner. So you have like an interaction with the agent, you end the payment channel, the agent gives it to the miner. I also a division of labor is a good answer. There's nothing stopping them, but they won't necessarily be. And they don't have to be. But they probably will be. Because miners will probably want to differentiate. So some of them will run these other services like, well, we had to build a custom hardware to run script. I have an idea. Why don't we set up these agents that do stuff? We let people pay us to run script inside payment channels instead of on-chain. So they get off of that as a service. Because then I think the division of labor, I think, it, I think it will encourage these to actually be different. They don't have to be. But I think they, they quite likely will be different because people are going to want to specialize and be good at what they do. So the conclusion is, um, so first of all, script is a 2PDA. That's just what it is. Uh, it's a two push down automata, or I guess that's right. It is, it is a two push down automaton, I think is how I should say that. Um, it is Turing complete. I gave you two ways in which it's Turing complete. Um, the, the idea of unrolling a loop is important. Um, when people say there's no loop, well, we have unbounded script sizes now, right? I mean, in theory, you could, you could unroll a loop to be really, really big. There's no limit, actually, um, other than the universe. I mean, but you can, for any, if you're willing to pay, you can have a larger and larger size transaction to do anything else. Um, a second way is inside payment channels. There's lots of interesting things you can explore here that would deserve its own subject, and I don't understand everything yet. So I'm trying to understand how that would all fit together with like, networks of payment channels, not for writing, but for other advanced things. Um, the way that script is designed, and the way that transactions are designed, is scalable because it's intrinsically, uh, uh, you can run them in parallel. So it's, it's just, it's like deeply, fundamentally more efficient than Ethereum. Ethereum was a regression on Bitcoin. It didn't add anything. What it did was subtract scalability from Bitcoin. There's nothing you can do with Ethereum that you can't do with Bitcoin. Uh, and then this agent model is another interesting way to understand the sort of efficiency of Bitcoin. It's economically efficient when we allow the market to decide who runs what, rather than requiring the miners to run all this advanced code. So it's, it's more efficient in many different ways um, that's it.